This is episode 39 of the Rising Man podcast with Ricky Goodall. Ding, ding. What's up, Rising Man community? This is Jetty Azuma, your boy, the host, the creator of this show, and another fantastic interview lined up for you guys. I've got my man Ricky Goodall here today, and I I won't even tell you too much about it yet. I'll hold off on telling you how brilliant this man is for just a little bit longer, just long enough to reach out to you guys. For those of you guys who are feeling stuck, maybe you've been listening to the Rise Man podcast, you've watched the YouTube videos, you've listened to the audiobooks, and you're just not sure how to take that information and apply it to your life. You're not sure how to break into that next level of your ability. You know that there's more waiting inside of you somewhere. You don't know how to uncover and unleash that power you have. Chances are that you're not unique, that you're just like the rest of us. You need some help and you need something that's going to reset you. That's going to give you a jolt, a power boost, because every man needs that at times. And the Elements Wilderness Immersion Training is exactly that. I'm talking about three days in nature with a team of men, stretching our edges of comfort and breaking through our greatest limitations together. If you're ready to take a bold leap into the unknown and never look back, I want you guys to sign up today. Information and links to sign up can be found at rise.jettyazuma.com slash elements. Trust me, we got you. This is gonna be an incredible experience. We're gonna be jumping out into the wilderness with 12 amazing men. Seats are almost full. So make sure that you sign up today. Grab your seat right now. All right, without further ado, let me start talking to you about my guest. I already mentioned his name. Ricky Goodall is a self-mastery coach, wisdom healer, and founder of Elevated Academy, a self-mastery coaching school, and the Society of Unism, a nonprofit organization that encourages the use of plant medicine ceremonies to treat and heal depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other forms of mental illness. He's a trained musician, ceremonial magician, lifetime martial artist, entrepreneur, and student of universal ageless wisdom. He's basically a modern day Leonardo da Vinci. (laughs) Ricky's ultimate dream is to help a minimum of one million human beings reach a state of absolute happiness so they can create their very own heaven on earth. Yes, my man Ricky has quite the story to tell and we captured a whole bunch of it in this interview. He talked about the contrast between the masculine and feminine and how we can learn to embrace both entities within ourselves. Ricky told his story about being a child raised by parents who abused drugs and his career as a professional MMA fighter, how he learned to channel anger and aggression into his sport, discovering a stark contrast in the medicine path, and then having an awakening on his journey to Peru. He spoke specifically about the value of surrender and what that has meant in his life of fulfillment. He's got an incredible story about a breakthrough experience he had and finding the value of surrender in a very poignant moment. I won't ruin it here, but it was really incredible to hear that part of his story. He also talked about creating new religions, healing centers for plant medicine, and so much more. Truly a unique individual. You guys are not going to want to miss this episode. Put your volume up, put your earbuds in. Without further ado, Ricky Goodall. Ricky Goodall on the Rising Man podcast, man, live from Nova Scotia. It's good to have you today, brother. How are you feeling? Thanks, Jetty. I'm happy to be here. Feeling great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excellent, man. Well, I mentioned to you before we started recording how intrigued I am 
by the unique story that you have and from your past and what you've been through and how that's shaped what you're into today and how you're affecting the world. So before we dive into the juiciness of that, let me ask you this question. For you, what is the difference between a boy and a man? I think the difference between a boy and a man is probably a lot of societal expectations and a lot of hardness and uh, hopefully a lot of maturity. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say I would say more than anything, I think the difference is is a hardening sometimes. Mm. And I think that uh, you know you. you it's really about going from boy to man, back to boy, I think sometimes. Hmm. So let's expound upon that boy to man, back to boy. What is the, what is the purpose of that? I believe that children are the most pure version of creators. You know, that children imagine without trying, they play without putting in any effort. And I think that's the key to happiness. It's playfulness and imagination. And I think that as uh, as adults, we grow into losing that. And so I think that the ultimate key to happiness is taking a lot of our manhood back to boyhood and becoming kids again and starting to play again and starting to open up and be soft and be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the useful components of manhood and masculinity? Good question. I mean, functionality, you know, men are functional. We're tools versus the women, which are, you know, beautiful. A lot of times, not that men aren't beautiful, but I think that uh, we're more functional in some cases we get things done. I think that courage is definitely a sign of manhood. You know, in a lot of Aboriginal cultures, the, the big transition between boy and man is some kind of fearful initiation, some kind of thing, some kind of big test. So I think it's a, a sign of courage, responsibility, and leadership probably are the biggest differences between boys and men. Mm-hmm. And judging by what your answer was to the first question, you feel that that is something we're lacking on a general scale as a masculine population these days? I think so. And I, and I think uh, in terms of masculinity, I think those traits are also very prominent in women who are well balanced as well. So I think that it's more so than a sign of masculinity or, or manhood, sorry, it's masculinity. It's that masculine energy, that, that creative energy that's necessary in our, in our society, but sort of lacking sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's a great segue into my next question. What's the difference between masculine and feminine? If we want to get technical, I guess masculine is creative, feminine is destructive, or masculine is forceful moving forward, or feminine is receptive and, and receiving. And I think that there are, I study some ancient Kabbalah, ancient forms of wisdom, and, and actually the, the feminine is power and the men is mercy, the masculine is mercy. So mm. they have it kind of backwards for balance. So I think that the man steps forward while the, the female steps backwards in terms of the actual mechanisms of masculine and feminine, though I don't think that those are gender roles. I think that those are energetic explanations more than anything. Right. And so the you define masculine as creative and feminine as destructive. And is that something that comes from the Kabbalah studies as well? Yeah, I think that's more of a, almost like a binary quantum kind of way of seeing, yeah, energetic way of seeing things, right? So masculine is the phallic, whereas the feminine is the womb, right. you know? So one's, re- one's receiving, one's, one's giving, or one's creating, one's destroying. Sure, and I can understand yeah. that context. What's interesting is that creativity often gets associated with the feminine, or even, right, even more generally, which I think is the problem, is women. We say that, you know, femininity and women gets clustered together. So sure. how, do you, how do you resolve that perspective? 
Well, I mean, at the core, we're all just neutral, aren't we? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, if we have a if we have a soul, what gender is it? Yeah, I don't know if there's a gender. I I, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a philosophical question. But I mean, at the core, I think that the, we're all just balanced energy that's choosing one manifestation or another to find balance. So, mm-hmm. so I think that in in all mask, look at the yin yang symbol, right? I mean, we've got the strong masculine with a little bit of feminine, strong feminine with a little bit of masculine, and then together they create balance. And I study some hermetics as well. And in hermetics, we have the law of gender, which you know states that there that everything exists on a spectrum. Nothing is black and white. Everything exists somewhere on that spectrum. And I think that applies to masculine and feminine. I think that applies to sexuality. I think it applies to pretty much everything in the universe. You know, it's all just a spectrum of colors, not black or white. Right. And we're going deep. We're going deep fast, Jenny. Yeah. Jeez, look at this. Yeah. Well, that's 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 the juicy yeah. stuff. Man. That's yeah. what we're looking for. And that's why I asked this question is because. As a society, we've simplified it. We sure. we learn to associate masculinity with men and femininity with women. But mm-hmm. you just completely unraveled that, which is exactly what I intend for my guests to do. <laughs> so I think it's actually one of the most destructive belief systems is that as men, we're believed to be purely masculine. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's more of a question of what is the balance between masculine and feminine that exists in you as an individual. Right. So can you speak a little bit about that and how that is incorporated in your belief system in your work? Yeah, I mean, my my quest to balance my energy happened long before I met my current fiance, but then when we met each other, it became this sort of like rapid evolution. My birthday's February 8th, 0208, and hers is August 20th, 0820. She's a Leo, I'm an Aquarius. So we're like, you know, she's the compassionate one, but she's the Leo and I'm the, I'm the masculine dominating one, but I'm the Aquarius. So we've got this kind of like mix of energies that really works. And uh, I think that, I mean, when you think about even fire, you know, fire left to its own devices will destroy everything. But when balanced with water or balanced with some kind of balancing agent, fire becomes powerful. We can, we can direct fire. We can use fire. We can create engines. We can create airplanes. You know, we can do amazing things with fire when it's properly directed. Mm. So I think for me, my background's professional fighting. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But that was when I was at my most masculine. And that was when my life was most destructive. So again, we said earlier, creative versus destructive. And you could definitely flip those roles. You know, masculine can be the destructive. Mm-hmm. And we all know that. I mean, look at the world that we're in today. We're in a masculine-dominated world. And sure enough, there's tons of destruction. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, for me, it was learning how to contain the fire and balance it with water, balance it with that feminine energy too. Right. And that's when happiness started to come. Right. And, and just using the term destructive, if, if anything is pulled too far in one direction towards one pole or the other, I think right. the only outcome is destruction, where you, you go back to yin and yang and balance and all of these symbols that we have through ancient traditions of balance, of equanimity, of four directions, of above and below. We're always seeking neutrality yeah. and balance. So yeah, so just appreciating that at different times in an individual's life or in different times in the spectrum of a society of people of an era, we will swing the pendulum in one direction or the other. So mm-hmm. where do you feel just taking a general assessment of the world as it is right now, which way is the pendulum swinging for masculine or feminine? That's a good question. So I can answer it in two ways. I can answer it based on our current history and I could say, well, it's, you know, the world's going to hell and we're, we're evolving so fast and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I'm a student of uh, esotericism and, and I'm a student of uh, ancient human history. And I mean, really ancient human history. And uh, I, this is just my theory. This is just Brian Forster is an author who, who I've met in Peru. And he's written 22 books on this subject. And Graham Hancock, of course, as well as some of the others. And, and my theory is that consciousness 
it has a 26 to 24,000 year cycle. And it goes through six or four grand ages, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And these are 6,000 year ages that are descending backwards. And I believe that we're currently just shifted from an iron age to a golden age. And it's very easy to see when you look at the world since December 21st, 2012, on or around that time. You can see this massive shift in consciousness. And if you think of the last 6,000 years, which is supposed to be the darkest, the most uh, doom-filled age, the Iron Age, you can see that that makes sense. And then when you look at sites like Machu Picchu or, or Pyramids of Giza or Saxa Woman in Peru, uh, you can see that we were significantly more advanced in our history. And, uh, and there's a good chance there was a flood, you know, 10 to 12,000 years ago that destroyed everything, which would have been in these shifting of ages. So to answer your question in short, I think, I think the best is yet to come. I think that we have no idea how amazing it's going to get. I think that uh, if you look at the media, you might think the world's going to hell. But if you don't look at the media and you travel yourself, you see that things are just getting better and better all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that we're moving toward a really amazing time. I, I think that like anything when you grow, your shoes get too tight and they feel uncomfortable. And sure enough, the world's growing too. So some things are going to get uncomfortable. Some things are going to have to change. And I think that mother nature and societies are starting to feel that pressure. And so there might be some destruction. There might be some chaos, but I think that we're moving towards something pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I like that you brought that up, that, that growth is often, uh, pre what comes before growth is discomfort. Even if you think of when you're growing as a child, you know, you get those really intense pains in your knees in the middle of the night before you can grow a few inches or before your your muscles can grow. And so that's great perspective to put on the world. And, and so much of it has to do with our mindset, right. And the way that we're viewing the situation. I could look at the same event, the facts of an event and make it the greatest thing that could possibly happen or the, the largest trauma that anyone could ever imagine. On the other side. Of yeah, it. life is perspective, right? It's all perspective. It's all pattern matching. What are you looking for? You see what you, what you look for. You know, when we exercise, we tear our muscles apart so that they can grow. Mm-hmm. We literally shred them apart mm-hmm. inside so that they can grow. You know, but we don't see that. We just, we see the growth. We don't see the destruction sometimes. So as a coach, as a transformational coach, life mastery coach, what is your message for your clients that you have around comfort or discomfort rather? Yeah, I mean, I think everything happens outside your comfort zone, you know, that cliche saying that most of us have heard in one form or another. And I think that, you know, comfort is nice. Comfort is survival. For 200,000 years, humans lived in small tribes and comfort kept us safe. Comfort kept us from being kicked out of the tribe, you know, so that we don't starve or get eaten by animals or attacked by other tribes or whatever. So comfort was necessary for survival. I think that unfortunately, society has evolved significantly faster than our prefrontal cortex or our limbic system has. So we just aren't uh, neurologically wired for discomfort. We're neurologically wired to stay comfortable, right? And I mean, if you think about even the last 75 years, what our society has gone through, North American society or a global society has gone through, comfort during World War II was pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, comfort during World War One was really valuable. Comfort in other countries. I just got back from Peru and it was one of the most, unco- I've been there three times. And it was the most uncomfortable trip I've ever been on. And so now I'm home here in Canada and I'm like, wow, comfort's pretty great right now. <laughs> this is great. So I mean, comfort is nice. You know, comfort is, is great. And I think that if there wasn't a, a goal of comfort, we would never let ourselves be uncomfortable. Mm. But I think that there needs, like anything, there needs to be a balance. Because if we're always comfortable, we're not, we're not, we're not growing. We're not changing. We're not evolving. Yeah. This is one thing I always check myself on personally is not to demonize one pole or the other that 
you know, it's, it's very easy to say it's all about getting uncomfortable. All the learning happens on the edge. It's one of my favorite things to say. People have heard me say that all the time. But if we completely denounce dis- the comfort, then we're we're out of balance already. Just in the same way that sure. it's very tempting to forget about the boy in exchange for the man because we all want to become sure. the man. That's the that's the mission of the boy, right? Is to become a man. And so he, yeah. we, and it's very tempting to resist that which we don't want in favor of what we do. Um, so that, that kind of ties in back to what you said before about going from boy to man and then remembering to appreciate our boy again, that really awakens something in me. And I know that that's something that a lot of men are missing is that playfulness, that lightheartedness, the humor, the creativeness. So I'm wondering how much of that philosophy you have and what you came to plays into your childhood and the way you were raised. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your story and how you were raised as a child, what you experienced, and how that plays into your beliefs now. So seven years ago, I, I was at the peak of my fight career. And you know, I went from being this up-and-coming professional mixed martial arts fighter. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't use any drugs, nothing. I was dieting. I was very, very on track. And my fight career was going amazing. Then I get connected with some of these fighters, some of them UFC fighters, some of them not. We're using a lot of cocaine and, and things like this between fights. And so I got, I got sucked into that lifestyle. And so, so before I knew it, seven years ago, I went through a rock bottom. My girlfriend broke up with me. I was devastated. I was broke. I was, I was lonely. And how old were you and, at the time? Uh, 27, probably 27 years old. And I was devastated over this breakup and I did not want to be with this girl anymore. Yet I couldn't let her go. I just could not let the relationship go. I was devastated. Even my friend said, do you even want to be with this girl? And said, no, I don't, but I just can't let her go. I don't know why. Mm. And so I, so a friend of mine suggested smoking some weed. Mm. And at that time I never smoked weed at all. Right. And so I smoked some weed and I had this boom, this realization that I wasn't really missing this girl. It was actually rooted in my childhood. Mm. And so when I was nine years old, my parents split up. And and six months later, I was taken to foster care out of my mother's custody. And my brother got to stay home. So the feeling I felt during this breakup was just a repeated trauma of my childhood and going to foster care. And until 27 years old, I didn't think anything about my childhood. I didn't know that my childhood was affecting my life. I had no clue whatsoever. And so in the last seven years, I've uncovered all of the things I've been through. So essentially, I grew up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. My parents were kind of like a cross between bikers and hippies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were, they were drug dealers. They were drug addicts. They were addicted to cocaine. They were addicted to alcohol and, and any other kind of drugs that they could use. And so around eight years old, my parents decided to move away so that we could get away from that lifestyle. They owed so much money to the drug dealers that we were worried that one of them would go missing or something. So we moved about an hour and a half away to this tiny little town. And I remember when we first moved there, the town didn't even, doesn't even have a grocery store. To this day, doesn't even have a grocery store. You got to go to the next town to get groceries, right? There's no bus system. We didn't have a car. So it was, it was like moving into like the middle of nowhere. And so for a year or so, my parents were good. Everything was fine. And then one day, my mom, my brother, and I came home. And my dad was drinking. My parents split up. I was taken to foster care shortly after. I stayed there for almost a year. Then I moved in with my dad. Um, my dad was a severe alcoholic most of my life. And then at 15, I moved out on my own. Mm-hmm. So at 11 years old, my dad's alcoholism was so bad that he would cash his welfare check and give me the money so that I could pay for groceries and the phone bill and, and the rent. And then whatever was left over, I'd give back to him and he would spend on alcohol. At 11. I was at 11. 11. At 11. So, yeah. So my childhood was robbed from me at a young age. And uh, so that's why I say now I'm recognizing as an adult that most of us, what we're, what we're fearing or, or sorry, what we're missing most is our childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point we stopped believing it was safe to just be who we are. And at that moment, 
is when we lost a part of ourselves. And I think that we try to adapt to life at that point, never realizing that the rest of our life is spent running away from discomfort, really running away from pain, running away from, from fear or whatever it is that we're, we're scared to face. Yeah. Wow, man. That's a powerful story. Powerful story that I'm sure some guys who are listening can relate to, at least maybe in, in, in some way. And I know that they, they say that the majority of our behaviors, our conditions, our beliefs about the world and ourselves are developed between the ages of zero and nine. So by the time we're nine years old yeah. is when we've developed some of our most ingrained habits and behaviors. And this is why there's such an emphasis right. on parenting and supporting parents in how they can support their children these days. So just thinking in the context of that, what did you learn about the world as a child between the ages of zero to nine? We can even go up to 11 because that seemed like a pretty pivotal moment in your life yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's funny, I've heard the same statistics, zero to 12, you know, 75% of our beliefs. And, and I mean, there are two ways to answer that question. One, I learned a perspective of the world that, you know, my father taught me how to throw a punch when I was five years old, and I became a professional fighter. I learned how to play guitar when I was like 10 years old, and I became a professional musician for a little bit. And all of that money management at 11 years old eventually led to me being an entrepreneur. And I've opened almost a dozen businesses now, mm -hmm. and have taught business in college and everything. So I mean, it's like, first of all, I'm just going to throw a hammer down. I know I believe that every human being creates their own reality. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. So the question is, when did that start? Mm. <laughs> when did that start? When did we start creating our own reality? Yeah. That's a great question, man. I, I, I believe that it starts from inception, you know, before we even, before we even have fire and water meeting to create a little, little human. Yeah. Completely agree. And if that's the case, then that means I've created all of that trauma. Right. So the question, you know, what did that help you learn about the world? I mean, a lot, a lot that wasn't true, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, that you get, that it's every man for himself, that if the police arrest you, you don't say anything to anyone, which means that, you, you know, that translates as don't speak your truth, uh, you know, say whatever you need to get out of any situation, which kind of means lying to people, you know, so like the, the, <laughs> or your spouse is going to cheat on you, they're going to leave you eventually, so you might as well cheat on them first, or, uh, you know, if you, if you need to earn money, selling drugs is totally an option, and, and it's acceptable as long as you don't get caught, mm -hmm. you know, so, so my, my uh, blueprint of the world, you know, really created me to be the man I am today and, and to be the coach I am today and the entrepreneur I am today. But at the same time, uh, there was as much unlearning in my adult life as there was learning in my teenage years, in my childhood years, right. for sure. My first business was selling cigarettes at high school. <laughs> you know, like I never smoked a cigarette, but I sold single cigarettes at high, in high school, in junior high school to make my lunch money. Mm -hmm. right? so, so it's like it created this kind of like survival ability. Yeah. And that's a great way of looking at it because it's very easy. It's very convenient, actually, to look back at our childhood, whether someone has had a childhood like yours or something a little less obviously traumatic. And to say that I'm a, I'm a, to be a victim of the circumstances that they grew up in, like, oh, my life was so hard. I grew up with parents who were addicted mm -hmm. to drugs and alcohol, you know, and, and these manipulative behaviors. I was surrounded by that. And I think what it is, is every one of us comes to adulthood and we all have the same journey to walk, to unlearn what was unuseful to us, what was ineffective about what we were taught in those in that period of our lives, and to glean from it, like you said, what was really useful. And I'm glad that you went to the positive first, because it's so much easier to go to the negative, yeah. especially in your story. Yeah. yeah, and you know what? People aren't wrong. Their life was fucking hard. You know, I'm sorry to excuse my language, but I mean, their life was hard. You know, they did have a hard life. And, uh, and a lot of people never got that validation. Nobody sat down and said, yeah, you did. You did have a hard life. 
Because then they can say, "Oh, okay, somebody understands. Now what?" Yeah. Right. So, so I think that I think the thing that most people are missing is twofold. One, nobody really listened ever, or somebody didn't listen at a pivotal time, which makes them believe that nobody's listening ever. Mm. And the second thing is that they don't realize that they are the god of their reality. They create their reality. So, with great responsibility, creates great abilities. You know, great responsibility gives us the ability to create our reality consciously and effectively. So I think that, I think you're right. I mean, some people tend to go to that negative, but I think a lot of times it's because they never had a chance to fully exhaust whatever they need to say, fully exhaust whatever needs to be heard that nobody listened to once mm-hmm. before. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea that some people are just negative, some people aren't. I think some people are, have so much poison inside of them Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, I've had seven, seven powerful uh, ayahuasca ceremonies and a number of other ceremonies and, and healing and coaching and everything else. I think that when you're overwhelmed by that type of poison, it's, it's not that they don't want to be optimistic. It's that they're just not, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. They're neurologically not, it's not possible for them to see the world from a place of thriving versus just survival. I just need to survive. I have no idea what's going to happen. They, you know, you see these people, and I used to be one of them. You'll never see them with their back to the room. Their back is to the wall. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just a subconscious thing because uh, they didn't exhaust all of that poison. Them. That's poison still inside, mm-hmm. manipulating their behavior. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to have support when you're going through this process. Mm-hmm. When you, if you're listening to this podcast, yeah. you're somewhere on the journey of asking of, of asking questions about what part of my history is actually true and what part of it is just a story I made up that actually doesn't serve me anymore. Mm. So if you're listening to this, you're at some stage of that process and the razor's edge that I think you and I and every other coach, every other mentor, supporter, facilitator out there walks is how much is somebody just more committed to their victim story or are they really just stuck there because they can't see possibilities because they have had so much trauma, so much of a certain perspective of the world that they can't pull themselves out of it. And that's where all these other tools and strategies come into play to help someone mm-hmm. back into their truth, back into their, their authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. The question I ask somebody whenever they say, Oh, you know, I don't know what's going on. This thing keeps happening or that thing keeps happening, or I've been through this or I've been through that. I ask a simple question. All right. Well, what are you getting from it? <laughs> like, Oh, I'm broke all the time. Okay. Well, how's that serving you? Well, it's not. Well, yeah, it is because you create your reality. And you are, there are two things that create our reality. We either want it or we think we deserve it. Mm. And usually, usually it's a combination of both. So if somebody's financially struggling, I say, well, what are you getting from that? After you know, some deep work, we realize that what they're getting is their parents' pity, their parents' love, their friends are feeling bad for them. They get to stick to the same social circle they had in high school. They get to feel like a victim. They get to run away from their potential failures. You know, we get benefits from our struggles. Mm-hmm. We get benefits from them, emotional benefits. So until we fully understand how we're benefiting from our struggle, we can't possibly understand how we'll benefit from our success. Right. You know, so it's very neurological and subconscious for a lot of people. Yeah. And that's a great liftoff point too, because we wouldn't do anything if it didn't have some benefit for us. As It's just subconscious. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Right. As hidden as it can be, there's always some benefit there. So if that's just that's one great thing to reflect upon is if something if there's something in your life that you're not happy with or not pleased with, ask yourself that question: How is this benefiting me? What am I what am Absolutely. I actually getting from this? Even if I don't want to believe it or face it, now write down fifty ways you're benefiting, and believe me, the answers will come. Some, <laughs> I get people to do this fifty ways. They get to twenty and they're like, I can't finish it. I'm like, keep going, keep going. After they get to thirty, it's, they start pouring out. They're like, Oh my God, there are so many benefits to my struggles. I had no idea, and then they disappear. Right. Once they're conscious, they're not subconscious anymore. And once we know, we can't unknow. 
Right. That's huge. Yeah, there is. I've also noticed that threshold where our because our ego is the, the master illusionist, right? It can make us see the yeah. reality in, in whatever way it wants us to, to keep us where we're at, sure. to keep us safe, to keep us in that survival mode. So that's, right. that's huge, man. So let's let's start to fast forward a little bit through your history, because I'm really interested in how you got into fighting as as what you did for a while. And so I know you said that your yeah. father taught you how to throw a punch when you were five. So how did that unfold in your journey? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I was, I was a fat, poor, bucktooth, curly hair, chinky eyed kid. You know, you know, just, that's what I was called by everyone else. That was my, that was my label as a kid. So I got picked on all the time. I got bullied all the time. And, uh, you know, when I lived in Dartmouth, it was in a, it was in a city and there, it wasn't, I wasn't poor because I was in a whole community of kids that were poor. So it was just, it was just kids. The whole school that I went to, everyone was poor. It was a low income school. So it was no big deal. I moved to this small town and all of a sudden there's a separation. There's the rich kids and the poor kids that, rich kids group and the poor kids group. And then there's the fat kids and the skinny kids, you know, and, and everything in between. So I got picked on a lot and bounced around from schools and foster care and everything else. I was always the new kid. I was always shy. All these traumas from childhood, you know, and, and so at 13 years old, actually probably around 10 years old, my dad put me in Taekwondo for a couple of classes. I didn't stick to it. And then at 13, I started practicing karate. And one of my friends was a brown belt in karate at the time. And so he taught me as much as he could I was basically his training partner. And so I, I moved quickly through the belts. And then around 15 or 16, I decided to try kickboxing. because I really wanted to learn more of a street fighting style, again, to protect myself from all the bullies. And so around 16, I started practicing kickboxing. I fell in love with it. And then at 19, I started practicing judo a little bit and a little bit of jujitsu. And then mixed martial arts wasn't legal in Canada. They had a couple of fights in Montreal and Quebec, but that was it. And so in 2006, a professional fighter or an aspiring professional fighter and a bunch of coaches put together the first legal mixed martial arts event in Nova Scotia. And so I was there. I waited two hours in line to see it. I was 260 pounds at the time. I was very overweight. And my girlfriend and I at the time watched the show. I was in the nosebleed section. And I just started thinking, man, this is going to be me someday. I'm going to do mm. this someday. Shortly after that, me and this girlfriend broke up. I'm homeless. I'm jobless. I get fired from my job the same day. My best friend gets me to watch the movie The Secret, first time I ever saw it. I watch the movie The Secret. My mind is blown. And I find a picture of one of the guys that fought in that card that I watched. I printed the picture off and I put my face over top of his body. And here he is standing with it in his gloves and the referee's holding his hands up and he's winning his fight. And I started visualizing. And on a five-week notice, this judo gym I'm training at, one of the fighters on that card comes to the gym and says, look, I'm putting on a card right here in Picto County, in my hometown, in Trenton, that small 2,000-person town that I moved to, yeah. card right there in that town. And he says, do you want to fight? And I had no business saying yes to this fight. <laughs> 260 pounds, I'm drinking beer every weekend, you know, and I'm eating junk food and, and just scrounging to get by, just struggling to even make ends meet. And I happened to get unemployment finally. Uh, so I said yes, and I started training. I lost about 40 pounds in five weeks. I weighed into the fight at 205, fighting this six foot three shredded kickboxer. Great guy. His name was Richard. So I'm Rick, and they call him Rick too. So the corner men are about yelling at both of us, Rick this, Rick that. And so the fight starts. And in the first round, this guy gets on top of me, and he's pounding my head off the mat, just beating my head off the floor. And then uh, the referee didn't stop the fight, and the buzzer went. So I, I saved by the bell. 
I get up, I go back to my corner, I'm all disoriented. I almost went to sleep. Like I was so close to getting knocked out. My corner, my, my corner man, Jason Rorson, one of my good friends, he says, all right, are you having fun in there? I'm like, uh, really? He's like, all right, well, go knock this motherfucker out. Like, go knock this guy out. Go finish this fight. I was like, all right, it's my only chance now. I lost that round, so I got I to gotta finish the fight. It's the only way I'm going to win, at least I thought. So I fought my ass off. I, I just I was leg kicking the guy because he was so tall. I didn't want him to get close to me. I didn't want him to take me down again. So I'm just kicking his legs and throwing punches and kicking his legs. And finally, at about five seconds la- left of the final of the fight, I kick him so hard in the legs that he drops. He falls to the ground. And I go to run on top of him, and the ref stops it because the bell went. And I won by one point wow. on that fight. And mm-hmm. there, was a spot, there was a gear company in the, in the crowd watching, a mixed martial arts equipment company. And he offers me a sponsorship. He gives me $500 of free equipment and $100 cash bonus. I got paid about $500 total for that fight. And I just had this light bulb go off and be like, wow, people are going to, not only am I going to get paid for this, which at 500 bucks at that time was a big deal, but I can also get free stuff. This mm-hmm. is a huge opportunity. My little entrepreneurial mind started kind of going, and, and it was another two years before I fought again, but I managed to get sponsors, and, and at one point in my career, I was making far more in sponsorships than I was making on my fights. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I get paid five to 10K a fight, but I was making way more than that in sponsorships, supplement companies, gear equipment companies, and so on. So it was two years between my first and second fight, and I lost my second fight. And I, because I hurt my rib and I was scared and the guy dropped me and I just gave up. I curled up and I took a beating. I was so humiliated. I was ashamed of myself. And so when my third fight finally came, I was fighting this massive guy from Barbados or Nigeria. And I mean, he's just like this perfectly chiseled, jacked former bodybuilder, you know, just monster. And here I am cutting down to, I, I lost so much weight that I actually had to drink four liters of water to make it to 185. Mm-hmm. I had to drink water. And this guy cut down from 205. So he's just <laughs> massive. And I'm looking at the guy. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's just a monster. Mm-hmm. And so the fight, so I'm in the back of the locker room before the fight starts. And I'm so scared. I'm shaking. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm throwing up in the bathroom. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm never going to do this ever again. This is crazy. I can't, I can't handle this pressure. I can't handle this fear. And my coaches and my teammates are trying to make me relax. But I'm just like white as a ghost, clearly terrified. And I go out and I, and I fight and uh, the guy drops me just like happened in the second fight. But I was determined not to lose that way. I was thinking, if I lose, I'm going to get knocked out. I'm going to get submitted bad. I'm not going to lose that way. So I got back up. Actually, I foot stomped the guy from the ground and, and he got too scared. He backed off and I let, the referee got me back up. I caught the guy in a standing guillotine choke. And that was the start of my career. And I fought 21 fights in total. Wow. I fought some UFC veterans. I fought some now UFC fighters, multiple world championships, tried out for Ultimate Fighter, a couple of pay-per-view fights. And uh, yeah, 21 fights. I went from 205 almost to 155. I missed weight. I, 157 is the lowest I was able to get. And I kind of hovered around 170. Whoa. That's a whole journey yeah. in itself, man. Wow. I mean, between the weight cutting and, you know, handle, dealing with your fears is every opportunity we have in life is just another way for us to face the resistances that we have and the fears that we have. And so, so let me ask you this question. Cause before we, before we started this, I asked you and I said, Hey man, are you willing to talk about your fight career? And you said, yeah, you know, every, you know, and you were very honest. You said a lot of times I, you know, I want to direct my attention to what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, a lot yeah. of people keep encouraging you to speak about that. So let me ask, ask you, why do you, why do you resist speaking about that stage of your life? 
It's not, I guess it's like, it's a couple of reasons, really. I mean, first of all, my whole motivation to become a mixed martial arts fighter was to feel good enough. Mm. You know, it was, it was to feel good enough. It wasn't, I mean, and, and I can't speak for every fighter, but I could say that I've never met a fighter personally that I don't believe is doing it for a different reason. I think that it's the kind of sport that it's very masculine energy dominated. It's, it's very dramatic. It's very, it used to be about the best, most respectful martial artists. And that's when I first started being interested in it. Mm. And then it grew into almost like this kind of reality wrestling sort of thing. And I mean, no disrespect to the fighters. Trust me. I know what they're going through. I never made it to the UFC. I have teammates who are in the UFC now and I know what it takes. It takes serious sacrifice and serious hard work and, you know, getting up at 5 a.m to train and then training again at nighttime and eating a strict diet all the time and, and missing out on relationships and missing out on lifestyle. So I think more than anything, the reason I've ever been hesitant to talk about it is mostly just because I'm still healing from it. Mm. You know, I'm still, still healing from the shame, still healing from the regrets. And I never made it to my peak of my fight career because I, I liked the after party more than the fights after a while. <laughs> you know, I liked, I, all of a sudden I'm this, I'm this poor former fat rich kid or a poor kid, sorry, becoming rich in, in fame, rich in recognition. You know, I, everywhere I went in my home city, I, was, I would get in free. I'd skip the line. I'm VIP everywhere. I'm sponsored by all these amazing companies. I could go to Mexico or Montreal or Ontario and people would recognize me and, and uh, you know, give me this fame, fame kind of uh, idea. And it really went to my head in a big way. Mm. And I really started to believe my own hype. So, so then, you know, what goes up must come down. So I crashed hard at the mm. end of my fight career and I really started to realize that I was doing it for the wrong reasons just sort of gave up I didn't really want to do it anymore and I started doing it just for the money and and uh, just again for the reputation and the ego so after I retired I felt almost this kind of like sort of sadness because now I'm not Ricky Goodall the fighter I'm just Ricky Goodall mm. and all this all of a sudden I had to be me the real me and nobody even knew the real me because I created this persona like I said once I realized I could get sponsored then I just created Ricky Goodall. I created this MMA fighter mentality. I didn't have a bad temper. I wasn't arrogant. I wasn't egotistic when I began. But I noticed that all the great fighters were. Mm. You know, they were they were cocky. They were arrogant. They were showboats. They were uh, you know they'd walk into the bar and be VIP. They would be at the club getting free drinks or being in the VIP room or whatever. So I created this persona for myself, which in a, on a good note. It showed me that I can create myself to be whoever I want. I think that's what we all do subconsciously, but I just sort of did it consciously. And so mm -hmm. I think that's more than anything uh, is the soreness of it. You know, still yeah. sort of sore from, from what I created myself to be for a long time. Because not only was I fighting in the cage, but I was knocking guys out at bars. I was getting in bar fights. And, and I wasn't the guy that would start the fight, but I was usually the guy that would finish it pretty quickly or, or I'd show off or, you know, I just, I turned into this sort of monster for a bit. Mm. So, so yeah, that's more, more than anything. Well, I just want to acknowledge you, man, for owning that. And for sharing yeah. that, that's like you said, that's part of the healing process too, right? Is, is acknowledging those parts of our past. And just to go back to some of the medicine you brought in on the beginning of this interview, circling back and looking at what did, how did that serve you? How did that period of your life of, it's almost like a Siddhartha-esque type of story, you know? If I, if I, if I just suck it up and say like, if somebody came to me and said, Hey, look, I can, I can erase your whole, I can erase that all for you in your memory. Like, are you kidding me? No way, man. I was a rock star for like eight years. Forget mm -hmm. that. I loved it. I mean, like I, I've had this conversation with people before, you know, when I work with a client who's had an affair after they get through the shame and the guilt and the, and the self blame, I ask them the most important question. Did you love it at the time? Mm -hmm. And most people aren't ready to admit that, right? Most people aren't because when you don't admit that you're still carrying some self judgment, 
So I have to admit it. I mean, all the, all the shady stuff I ever did, of course, I, I loved it at the time. I loved mm-hmm. it. And, you know, we can't know the light unless we know the darkness, I don't think, sometimes. And so, so if nothing else, it showed me what I don't want. But, yeah, I mean, I loved it at the time. And, and it, it showed me that I can become anything I desire. There's no mm-hmm. limit. You know, I can create anything. I, can, I created this persona from nothing. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody wanted to buy tickets to my fights. Nobody wanted to watch me on pay-per-view. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, I'm filling bars with people watching my fights while I'm not even in the same city, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I, I showed myself that I can create anything. And the amount of, like, you know, when you get in a fight, your fight or flight court, you know, system starts to kick in. And, you know, let's say somebody attacks you right now in the street. You got about, you know, one second or two seconds for that system to turn on. When you're preparing for a fight, you're looking at eight to 12 weeks of wrestling with that system. Mm. So it taught me how to control my emotions in a way that I never even knew was possible. And then you're in the locker room and you're waiting to go for a scheduled battle. You know what I mean? This isn't like a random fight on the street. This is a scheduled battle. And then I have to walk to the cage. Then I have to walk in the cage. And I have to hug my, my, uh, my coaches. And then I have to look at this guy. Then I have to fight him inside of a cage with no one but a referee to save me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's not too much I'm afraid of anymore. There's sure. not too much that, you know, there's not too much conflict that I'm worried about. So it definitely created that for me. Wow, man. Yeah. And that's, that's a great perspective to have on it too. And it's a very unique one. You know, I think a lot of times when we're shifting this story around out of victimhood or shame or all those other emotions that you described into how does this serve me, we get to look at how unique our circumstances are sometimes and how that's actually a benefit, you know, how that, how that's an advantage. So, um, so cool, man. Thank you for sharing that and for being willing yeah, yeah, to no, flip it around. Let me ask you this, because I'm also a martial artist. I practice capoeira and cool, I did a little, nice. bit of, a little bit of boxing back in the day. Cool. So I love the martial arts. I think there's so much beauty and grace and balance and discipline in it. So what, what about the martial arts? And so let's, let's just keep it to martial arts instead of fighting. Do you find to still be useful as a man? Oh, I think not just as a man. I think martial arts should be mandatory for every human being. Mm. I'm sure you would agree. I mean, martial arts again, not the competitive, but the, but the art side of it creates a, a level of confidence and self-respect that a few other practices can give somebody. I mean, uh, when I started martial arts, it was because I respected like the samurai way, you know, I respected and capoeira. We're looking at us at a, at an art that was created in slavery. You know, this is amazing. It's incredible. Like karate was my first art. Karate was the farmers trying to defend themselves from the samurai. They, all their weapons had to be farm tools or else they would be murdered for having weapons they weren't allowed to have weapons they had to learn how to use farm tools to protect themselves so it's a it's a really honorable concept in martial arts and i think that martial arts are necessary for for all human beings i think that everyone can benefit from them and my focus now i took some time off martial arts got into some tai chi and and qigong but now i'm best friend as a fourth degree black belt in taekwondo so he's training me for my black belt and uh, i would like to get my karate black belt someday too just for fun you know, and mm-hmm. just to just to kind of like stay focused for that reason. So yeah, I think it's amazing. I think martial arts are, you know, the four elements are martial arts, right? You've got the fire, you've got the air, you got the water, you got the earth. You know, you are it really gives you and the ether, you know, your consciousness, you you've got this kind of perf- perfect art that can sh- polish a human being to become something amazing. Yeah. Completely agree, man. Completely agree. And it gives a, especially the art sense of the martial practice and yeah. yeah. there's there's so many metaphors for life there's so much there's so and for at least for me and it, it may not be for yeah. everybody it may not be everybody's language through which they like to the lens through which they like to evaluate and assess their life but when i'm playing capoeira or when i'm in that practice 
everything about how I show up in the world shows up there as well. There's no separation between the two. And that's one of the things I love right. about it. Great, man. So let's let's just fast forward a little bit. You already alluded to your journey with plant medicines and going to Peru. Mm -hmm. And maybe you want to speak a little bit to the work that you're in now, because it's a very, a lot of people would look at it and say it's a contrast to the first stage of your adulthood. Yeah. And I think uh, it is a contrast, uh, also a solution, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but yeah, a contrast big time. And it didn't come, it didn't come intentionally. Uh, in fact, uh, after I told you about that kind of rock bottom experience, I had that sort of awakening moment. From there, I continued to experiment. I experimented with psilocybin and, and LSD and then eventually dimethyltryptamine and DMT. And by the time I went to Peru for the first time, which was May 2016, I was coming out of that phase of my life, the, the fighter phase, the, the arrogant phase, the egotistic phase, and uh, starting to polish off my edges. So at that point, I probably tried DMT, dimethyltryptamine, maybe 50 times and decided to go to Peru on a lot, very short notice with a friend who actually chose the retreat center. I didn't even cho choose it. At the time, I had a wellness center that just closed. And so I reached out to the retreat center and said, hey, look, I, I think what you guys do is awesome. I'm going to be there soon. Maybe we can create a relationship to work together in the future. So they actually invited me to come for free. They, they said, come try out the retreat for free. So I went and in the first ceremony, no visuals, nothing happened, uh, nothing, nothing spectacular except the words nurture the roots came to me. Hmm. I, didn't know what, I didn't know what it meant. And so I, uh, we woke up the next day and we do a reflection with the shaman and the organizer. And they asked, you know, how was your experience? And again, this is a different Ricky Goodall at that time. And I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of disappointed. I came all the way here. I've tried DMT, you know, like 50 times and it didn't, wasn't anything like that. And I expected it to be this amazing <laughs> experience. And, you know, all I heard was the words nurture the roots. And uh, so the young organizer, he's like 35, speaks very good English. Uh, his name's Angel. And he just kind of looks at me and sort of nods and, and doesn't say anything. He looks at the shaman, he translates it in Quechua, and then the shaman responds, and, and, the, and the angel says, uh, the shaman says that Mother Ayahuasca is telling you to heal your relationships with your family. And, uh, you know, sometimes Mother Ayahuasca doesn't always give us what, she, what we want. She gives us what we need. And mm. she was preparing you for tonight's ceremony. But it's very important that you're respectful to the medicine because she's, she's aware of how you speak about her. And I was like, yeah, whatever. whatever. So <laughs> that, that day I write this letter and I go up to the mountain and I'm praying to Mother Ayahuasca and I'm saying, you know, I came here for something spectacular. I came here for something spectacular. I'm disappointing or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that night we drink and uh, within 15 minutes, I'm completely gone. I don't even know I'm Ricky Goodall anymore. I'm totally blasted into this other universe. There are all these little entities there and they're saying, you better surrender. Like, you better get on your hands and knees and surrender. Or we're not going any further. So I get up and I, I literally physically get on my hands and knees and I say, I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. And then in that moment, Mother Ayahuasca is whispering in my ears and saying, don't you remember this? Don't you remember this? And I looked down at my body and I'd become everything from the Big Bang to now. I became rock and ground and plant matter and amphibians and fish and furry animals and humans. And, and I'm looking down at my body's morphing into all of these different manifestations of creation. And then she, all of a sudden, there are all these beings around me putting their hand on my chest. And they're saying, you have to learn to heal yourself before you can walk amongst the angels. 
Mm. And uh, what I didn't know at the time is that the owner of the retreat's name is Angel, and his son, who's also a shaman, is the name Angel, <laughs> and he was the or- he was the organizer of the retreat. And so fast forward now, it's been it's been a couple of years, almost a couple of years since I went. I went back after that. I, I threw up probably thirty times at least, and I had diarrhea and throwing up for almost two hours. And uh, and I said I'll never do this again. I'm never doing this again. Five months later, went back again with my fiance. <laughs> yeah, I went back with my fiance and five of my clients. And uh, and in the second ceremony, the second time I went, it's the organizer, Angel's younger brother this time, whole family-run organization. They're called Etnicas in Cusco. They're phenomenal. They've got doctors, psychologists, massage therapists, Andean priests, Amazonian shamans. They're the real deal. They're an integrative health clinic. Uh, they call themselves a hospital, not not a retreat center. And uh, so anyway, his, his younger brother's there. And I say, look, Teddy, I'd like to have enough of uh, ayahuasca so I never have to do this again. Can you give me a worst mistake you can imagine, right? So, so he, pour, he fills my cup right to the rim. You know, everyone else has about half that much. He fills mine right to the rim. And I drank. And I'm telling you, Jetty, it was the most, it was the biggest ass kicking I've ever received in my entire life. It was the most humbling experience I ever had. However, the insights and the guidance that Mother Ayahuasca gave me in that experience has transformed my life. She said, you're going you're gonna to bring Ayahuasca to Canada. You're going to start your own retreat organization. You're going to open a religion so that you can do this stuff. You're going to bring a shaman from Peru. You're going to start studying ancient wisdom. At this point, I didn't study Kabbalah. I didn't study Hermetics. I didn't study any of this stuff. She told me to study all of this stuff. She showed me all the geometrical symbols. She showed me the six-sided star, Solomon Seal or Star of David, whatever you like to call it. She showed me all of these symbols. She showed me that heaven is actually a place on earth that we can reach when we raise our vibration. She told me that when you cleanse yourself, you start to raise and you create this experience for yourself. And it was so intense, I threw up so much that they actually had to give me a gravel needle to stop me from throwing up because they were worried I was going to damage my vocal cords. I was just completely in this other world. And so all of those things have happened since then. I've organized a a legal religion. We've put on ayahuasca retreats here in Canada. We've brought that young shaman, Angel, the organizer. He actually is a good friend of mine now, and he's been to Canada to do a retreat with us. And and our goal is to build a retreat center. So I went back to Peru. Finally, I went back about three three and a half weeks ago. And again, I said, I'm never going back again. My intuition just said, you got to go back. You got to go see if there's anything left to find. And so I've done so much work in the last two years. I found a dozen traumas I didn't even know existed. I've learned forms of ritual, shamanic ritual, to find traumas that are buried and to, and to release them and to let go of the pain. And so this time I went, Jetty, I was terrified, man. I was, and I went by myself, and I've never gone by myself before. Okay. I was terrified. I was going for two ayahuasca and one San Pedro ceremony. And I get there, and we've got the ayahuasca, and they give me more than everyone else because I have more experience. And I'm just looking at it like, oh, my God. I'm just sick to my stomach, terrified. So I drink, and it was the most beautiful experience I've ever had. Mother Ayahuasca says to me, "You relax. You've done the work. You don't need to be humbled. You don't need to go through what you went through before. And I just feel her releasing all of the tension in, in my stomach and all these knots I've had since I was a young child. And she says, you've done all the mental trauma work, but you haven't done the physical trauma work yet. Mm. So I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to clean that out of you. 
And so the next day we wake up and I tell the shaman my story. And he says, Mother Ayahuasca told me that you are a shaman, that you, that you are a doctor, that we would like you to come back and learn how to work with the medicine. And I'm not sure about that because it tastes terrible. And I have thrown it up far too many times. <laughs> but he said that uh, Mother Ayahuasca is inside of me now. So I can, mm. I can use her in ceremony. I can use her in coaching sessions. I can call on her by name. To, he put a special song special Icaro inside of me to be able to direct this medicine. So for me, it's been seven ceremonies in total. And the, at Etnica's, their goal is to help people create what they call absolute happiness. Hmm. Relative happiness is happy if I have, or happy if I do, or happy if I'm with so-and-so or this or that. Absolute happiness is just a state of happiness that we maintain at all times. And Jetty, I didn't believe that was even possible, man, with everything I've been through, with all the pain I've been through. Just a month ago, I found one last trauma all the way back to three years old. My grandmother locked me in a room and psychologically abused me, called me fat and ugly. And, and sure enough, I became fat when I was older and thought I was ugly. Uh, shamed me for being a boy, shamed me for having a penis. And then she would wake up the next day, she would be sober and she'd tell me it was just a dream. Mm. And I was at three, three and four years old, so I never remembered it. I found it in a, in a cannabis plant medicine ceremony. I was doing this deep shamanic work and all of a sudden an image came to me of her and I followed that image and I found the whole memory and I found the whole event. Mm. Cried, cried and cried and cried and released. And so for me, ayahuasca has, has first of all, I was, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Uh, I fought it most of my life with martial arts, with music, with, with plant medicines and so on, and drugs and alcohol when I was younger. It wasn't until the last couple of months that I realized it was a real thing, mm. that, that, that my anxiety and my anger and my constant feeling guilty and feeling ashamed of things wasn't what everyone else feels. Mm. I thought everyone felt that way. So right. I just was so mentally strong that I was able to push it away and bury it. But then I realized I finally... Things started to get really heavy after I found that trauma. It started to get really, really bad. And the anxiety got to be so overwhelming that I was cutting relationships out. I was pushing people away. And then I go to Peru this time and it all disappears. Mm. It's all gone. You know, I'm not saying those results are typical. It takes a tremendous amount of effort and work to get those types of results. But now I know that that absolute happiness thing they were talking about two years ago that I thought was just a big joke. Now I know that that's really possible. That is, and it's possible for anyone, really. Yeah, and obviously the modality of plant medicines and building a relationship with the plants is one way of resolving some of these traumas and, and reawakening some of the things that we've stuffed underneath these masks and these survival tendencies that we have. And and sometimes and it may not be for everybody, or may not be for you right now, um, but it's, it's, it's certainly compelling to hear your story. And the image that stuck with me in your story the most was, I think it was the second ceremony where you said that you were on your hands and knees saying, I surrender. Yeah. And just the, the, the image of a fighter admitting right. surrender. Broken down, broken down. Super powerful, man. Really powerful. Yeah, and you know what? There's another part I should tell you. So in the fifth ceremony, the one that really broke me, the one that really kicked my ass, I saw an image of my face. And you might have saw the picture of my Facebook where I've got the mohawk. And yep. it was just that image. And it was around that time of my life that I was knocking people out at bars and getting in fights and getting arrested. And there was this horrible pain in my stomach. I felt like I was getting stabs from my stomach. And I was asking Mother Ayahuasca, why am I feeling this? Why am I feeling this? And she says, because it's the only way you'll forgive yourself. It's mm. the only way you'll forgive yourself. And so when I went there this time, in my final ceremony, my seventh ceremony, Mother Ayahuasca says, I'm, so, I'm in bliss, Jenny. I'm like... 
man, with ayahuasca bliss, that wasn't what I was used to. I was used to right. getting my ass in. I'm in this blissful state and I'm just listening to everyone throw up and I'm laughing. I'm like, oh, it's not me. It's not me. And Mother Ayahuasca says, see, surrender isn't something we do out of fear. Surrender is something we do out of trust. Mm. Surrender is something we do when we trust that we're supported. Mm. Surrender is something. Surrender is the act of the warrior, not the coward. Mm. Surrender is the act of the warrior, and I realized that then I was like, "Oh, that makes so much sense." When we surrender to conflict in life, it's not because we're afraid; it's because we're so sure that we have created that conflict. That surrendering is the only way out of it. It's the only way to transmute it. It's the only way to get the best of it. And so it's very wow. powerful, especially as a continuation of that first surrender. <laughs> the hands wow. on my knees, yeah, broken down. Wow, man. Uh, I'm glad that we carried that all the way out because that last piece yeah, yeah. there is, that's just sublime. You know, that cool, surrender is the act of the warrior. That's, that's, whew. Yeah. let's take a minute to let that land. Anybody <laughs> listening, like rewind 15, 20, 30 seconds and hear that again. <laughs> um, awesome, man. Well, wow. What a, what a story. Thank you. First of all, just thank you for sharing thank your sure. story. Thank you for having and, me. I really appreciate what you're doing here. I think this is very important. And, and you know, it's, uh, there's lots of content out there, but there's not a lot of conversations. And I think conversations can change the world. Absolutely, man. Oh, thank you very much. And this is just another powerful conversation. I think I like mm -hmm. to think of these as interviews of dis like discovery interviews. We're both discovering deeper yeah. down our, our individual paths and to have other people who can listen and benefit from it. That's to me, that's a win, win, win. So, sure. so before I cut you loose, man, let me ask you a couple of lightning questions and then I'll let you share your information so people can uh, sure. get to know you and support you. So first one is what is one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? Uh, that I create my reality mm -hmm. without, without a doubt that I'm the God of my reality, that there's nothing, there's nothing above and beyond what's possible for me because in my reality, I am the center of it just like you. And I wish I knew that, but I'm also glad I didn't because I don't know what I would have did with that, man. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sorry to say, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard to wish away those experiences, but the, I guess I guess really the question is, what is the what is the most poignant wisdom you've learned in your life that served you the most? Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, and maybe even before 18, right? It'd be nice to know that when we're children, yeah. that we're creating we're creating right. our reality, and everything is happening to us for a reason. I never heard that from my parents. No. And I think we're creating that having these conversations because, you know, guys like us are parents now and, and, and that we do have the possibility to create that for children of the future. And that's why I say there's too much evidence to support that we're moving into a beautiful golden age because we weren't able to have this conversation 20 years ago. Right. It just, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a topic. Yeah. I had a quick thought this morning about technology because it's, it's so easy to demonize the people who are making a lot of money off of our iPhones yeah, and all yeah, this stuff. Sure. And I was like, all these people who say stuff like that have a, have an iPhone in their pocket and they're probably running a yeah. business out of it and they wouldn't have been able to do that, you know, nope. 10 years ago. So anyway, yeah. Being grateful for things and flipping the perspective is huge. For sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me ask you one more. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Oh, I think uh, that's a good question. I think the most important value is probably humility. Mm. I said I had this conversation with a friend of mine. He was a former cocaine dealer, just got out of the penitentiary. I haven't seen him in years. He's a six foot three black man, 280 pounds, jacked, just shredded. And we're sitting down and he's very humbled now, obviously. He spent some time in jail. And, and I said to him, humility is power. And he's like, Ricky, we've been talking for two hours and you had me right up to that moment. I don't get it, man. I don't get how humility is power. I said, here's how it is. If you and I were starving on the street, I'm going to eat first because I don't mind asking. I'm going to ask every person I can for food until I get it. And that gives me power. You're going to be starving and I'm going to be fed. And that's how humility gives us power because asking it shall be given. Right? So I think humility is the most important value as a man, because if we can be humble and powerful at the same time, 
that makes you unstoppable. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a fusion of the two, man. And people often see the two in contrast to each other. It's again, sure. another one of those yeah. things where we have to flip the perspective on and look at it from a different angle. Awesome, man. Well, hit us with all the information, the socials, the website, however we can support you. People want to attend yeah, yeah. a retreat. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. So, so first of all, uh, Elevated Academy is my business. Uh, we say that we help people create heaven on earth. So elevatedacademy.org. ORG is the website, same Facebook page, just Elevated Academy. That's the best way to get in touch with me. We have our Society of Unism, which is our not-for-profit. We encourage plant medicine usage and ceremonies for uh, mental illness, depression, anxiety, and so on. Uh, anything with that is best to just get me through Elevated Academy. So very simple. My fiance and I had a bit of a podcast going for a while on the web, on the Facebook page. We're going to start that up in a couple of weeks about relationships. Her and I talk a lot about real, true, transparent, deep and dirty relationship stuff that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And uh, so that's the best way, the Facebook page and, and the website, website for contact, Facebook page for content. Uh, that's the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for taking the time and for sharing your story, going deep into the vulnerability, man. I mean, sure. I, I love having guys on here who embody their message because I, I won't bring somebody on here who is not authentic in what they're and, and, and walking their talk. And you are a man I could clearly see is doing that, man. So cool. thank Thanks, you for the work Jerry. you're doing in the world, bro. I look forward to catching up with you further down the road. Yeah, thank you. All right. I told you guys, Ricky is a special dude. He really has a story journey. I'm sure one day somebody will make a movie about this man because it's such a compelling story and brilliant to see how he has taken all the challenges and all the adversities in his life that other people may look at and have sympathy or empathy for, and he's leveraged them into strengths. He has such an amazing way of flipping the tortilla around, as I like to say, and taking a different perspective on the hardships he's had in his life. Even the word hardship, I don't think that's a word that's in Ricky's dictionary. I think he would use more something like opportunities or advantages that he's had in his life that other people haven't had. So I really hope you guys appreciated the wisdom that Ricky brought. Make sure you guys go check him out, follow what he's up to. He's doing some crazy things over there in Nova Scotia. Check out my man and throw some love his way because he's doing some incredible work on this planet. I strongly encourage you guys, if the wisdom that's coming through on these episodes, if you're listening to these men who are showing up on this podcast and you're wondering how you can have a life like that, how you can create a life of fulfillment, a career where you're doing work that you love, that's changing people's lives and really impacting the planet, to have relationships that you want, financial uh, relationships and a context for the life that you've always dreamed of. I strongly encourage you to sign up for Elements here in Ojai, California. It's going to be occurring from October 26th to the 28th. If you're ready to finally break through all the BS stories that are keeping you playing small and figure out what you're really made of, what the power and the purpose you have within yourself is, where it's lying and how to unleash it, claim your spot today. Head over to rise.jettyazuma.com slash elements. That's where all the information is landed at. That's where you can sign up for your one-on-one -on -one call with me and we can get you on board because seats are limited. And by, by the time you guys hear this, we may already be full. So make sure you check it out today. Join the Rising Man Facebook community, facebook.com slash groups slash The Rising Man. This is where we bring the conversations from each episode and blow them open into the community of over 800 men that we've got there going strong right now. Make sure you sign up today and bring your friends, bring your brothers, bring the other men in your life who would benefit from diving into these conversations. 
Check out the show notes for links and resources at therisingmanpodcast.com. Everything we talked about in this episode, all the links, all the websites, places to contact Ricky, places to sign up for Elements, it's all there on the website, therisingmanpodcast.com. Subscribe or follow us on the podcast app of your choice. Please leave a review and comment with your biggest takeaways, insights, and reflections from each episode, either on the app you use to listen to us or at therisingmanpodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Podcast. Shouts to my power team, Sean, Rowan, Julian, Mark. You guys are just crushing it right now. Crushing it right now. Sean over at Infinite Melodics. That's at Infinite M-E-L-O-D-I-X on his Instagram. Hit him up with all your audio engineering, podcast editing needs. He is the man, period. And until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.